you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight, 12 days into Vladimir Putin's ghastly war against Ukraine. And it is quickly becoming a humanitarian disaster. It's already the fastest growing movement of people in Europe since the Second World War. The U.N. says more than 1.7 million people have fled Ukraine since the first shots were fired there. The U.N. Human Rights Office has confirmed more than 400 civilian deaths, including 27 children since the beginning of Putin's invasion. But suggested the real numbers are considerably higher. While the White House confirmed the U.S. is collecting evidence of possible war crimes and violations of humanitarian laws. A U.S. senior defense official said Russia has now moved nearly 100 percent of the forces it had amassed around Ukraine into the country, with Russian troops trying to encircle the southern city of Mariupol. Under siege from a barrage of shelling over the weekend in violation of the ceasefires meant to allow people to evacuate, attempts to evacuate civilians were halted as the Red Cross says an estimated 200,000 are trying to flee the city. In Irpin, just outside of Kyiv, around, two, around 2,000 people evacuated safely today. Residents there have also been without heat or hot water for days and under heavy fire as Russian forces advance on the capital. Over the weekend, Russia continued the shelling as citizens tried to evacuate. Ukrainian officials said eight civilians were killed. At UN Security Council meet at UN at a UN Security Council meeting to address the situation, U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas Greenfield called on Russia to honor Ukrainian proposals for safe passage. The humanitarian toll of President Putin's war on Ukraine is mounting. Children are dying. People are fleeing their homes. And for what? It's clear Mr. Putin has a plan to destroy and terrorize Ukraine. Earlier today, Russia put forward a proposal to allow people from Kyiv, Kharkiv, Sumy and Mariupol to evacuate, but only into Russia or its close ally Belarus. Ukraine, unsurprisingly, rejected that proposal as unacceptable. Russia claimed the move came at the request of French President Emmanuel Macron, who called Russia's plan hypocrisy. Meanwhile, today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky pressed for more international sanctions against Russia, including boycotting Russian oil and halting exports to the country. What is needed is a boycott of Russian exports, in particular the rejection of oil and oil products from Russia. It can be called an embargo or just morality, when you refuse to give money to a terrorist. Boycott imports to Russia. If they do not want to comply with civilized rules, they should not receive goods and services from civilization either. Let the war feed them. President Biden and the leaders of France, Germany and the United Kingdom held a call and affirmed their determination to continue raising the costs on Russia. And tonight, a still defiant President Zelensky released yet another video showing he has still not left Ukraine's capital city and praising the fierce Ukrainian resistance. And joining me now, NBC News correspondent Cal Perry in Lviv and NBC News foreign correspondent Matt Bradley live in Rivna, Ukraine. Uh, let's go in reverse order, Matt. Um, what is the status in Rivna? Um, what is the status of people trying to get out or get through there to get out? Yeah, we're not seeing a whole lot of refugees or I should say internally displaced people here in Rivna. We're seeing a city that is girding for war. You know, you mentioned Belarusia earlier. 
if Belarusia comes involved, then they could bring their troops right here, right over this area. And that's the real threat. This place hasn't seen a whole lot of bombardment. But there's a lot of worries here. I spoke with the mayor and he, re he repeated that call for a no-fly zone. And, you know, a lot of people here, even ordinary people that I'm talking to on the street, this isn't some theoretical, geostrategic, geopolitical concept. Regular people are demanding, when they find out that I'm an American, demanding that there be a no-fly zone. And there's a reason why that's so difficult to impose, you know, because it, it would just have a host of repercussions. It would be a massive escalation. And NATO has made it clear that doing that would really mean putting U.S. military uh, service people right in the front lines in direct conflict with Moscow. And that would mean a major escalation. And it could mean something like a European wide war. So this is the issue that a lot of people here keep pressing. It is the one wish of every Ukrainian person and politician that I speak to. It's for that no-fly zone. Joy? And just really quickly, to stay with you for a second, Matt, is that something that the people that you talk to really relate to the United States doing this? Or is this something that they think that the EU, that NATO, is this something they're specifically saying to you? You said as an American. Is this something that they are asking of us as a country or of Europe and the West? Yeah, I think that the, just as an American, uh, most of the crew that I'm with here are British. It's it's everybody in the West, really. And I think that, you know, they know very well that when it comes to enforcing a no-fly zone, the U.S. has the assets, the U.S. has the planes, and the U.S. has the military might to do something like that. And and that is something that they are acutely aware of and something that they keep repeating. Uh, and they're grateful, I should say. They are very grateful for what they've seen so far coming from the West. But they really feel as though a lot of the assistance has been a day late and a dollar short. Mm -hmm. And they think the no-fly zone is a way that the West can get in front of things. You know, one of the things that I heard from the mayor of this city, he said the Ukraine, Ukrainian people are fighting and dying for Europe. They shouldn't be fighting and dying so that Europeans can enjoy their lives. This is a sacrifice that the Ukrainian people are making on behalf of Europe and on behalf of the entire world. Joy? Yeah, they're not wrong. Um, Cal Perry, um, where you are in Lviv, and now we've just sort of seen over the last uh, 12 days that Lviv is sort of where people are sort of coming to to, to get out. What are you seeing there? Uh, what's the level of crisis that you're that you're witnessing? Well, we're seeing an increase um, of awareness, I think, of the violence in the east. Far from where Matt and I are, there are these cities, a dozen or so in the northern part of the country, uh, that are under a state of siege, uh, where the Russians have surrounded these cities, they've cut off the power in the water, um, and for days and days now you have people who just don't even want to come out or go above ground. Then in the south along the Black Sea, you have these strategic cities. You have Kirshan, which fell to the Russians. You have Mariupol, where they've been desperately trying to get people out, where we had one of those corridors actually succeed. A few thousand people were able to sort of just rush out today very momentarily. Those cities are just being shelled relentlessly by the Russians. And what you have arriving here are people from those places. The reason they're not arriving where Matt is, and they are here, is because of central train stations and, and the rail line just runs straight from Kiev, the capital, to where I am. And so you have at least now, we've heard from the mayor here, 200,000 people have already been settled. That doesn't include the people who are sleeping on the street, the people who are sleeping outside the train station, the folks who are still waiting at the Polish border, or folks who have turned around and given up. It doesn't include people who've been dropped off at the border and are headed back to fight. The other interesting thing that's happened here when you talk about these negotiations 
negotiations is they've really broken down not just over the humanitarian corridor, but over a question that Matt is talking about, which is the airspace here and who's going to control the airspace here. There were at least two Russian jets, according to the Ukrainian army, shot down over Kyiv tonight alone. So this question of air power is going to be the key one going forward because it is the only thing that is preventing right now these Russian jets from just nonstop indiscriminately bombing the capital. Um, it is the fact that the surface-to-air uh, system that the Ukrainians still use is still functioning, um, and it is that Ukrainian jets are still in the air. So when you talk about NATO, that has to be part of the discussion, Joy. Yeah, indeed. Um, tragic situation, and thank you all for your great coverage. Really appreciate you. Cal Perry, Matt Bradley, stay safe. Thank you both. With me now from Ukraine is Sergei Sakovsky, former Ukrainian tennis player. Um, and thank you so much for being here and taking the time to talk with us. I know that you are um, back in your home country willing to fight for the freedom of Ukraine. Tell us what you're seeing, what you're experiencing right now. Well, it's, uh, it's a pretty desperate situation, I would say. Uh, Russia is bombing Kharkiv. Uh, they're trying to bomb Kiev, but not at the same scale as they do in Kharkiv. Um, they're bombing civilian sectors. They, they say they're attacking only military bases, but the fact is that they're destroying civilian compounds, uh, quarters. Uh, they are not able to enter the city of Kiev. That's where I am. Uh, it's uh, on the... On the ground, there is not a single soldier inside of Pemsev Kiev. They are stuck in the suburbs. They destroy the suburbs. Um, they are attacking civilians, the ones that are trying to leave. Uh, they are attacking volunteers that are trying to bring some water and food into the, this, uh, the suburbs. It's, it's a barbaric actions what they're doing right now, actually. What, what it, it sounds like, and sort of what a lot of the analysis is, is that Russia militarily is not winning this war, to be blunt. They, they underestimated the ferocity of the resistance and the willingness of Ukrainians to resist. And so they are attempting to simply demoralize at this point Ukraine and deliberately, as you just suggested, target civilians, target people who are trying to flee and just flatten the country if they can't get uh, Ukraine to surrender. Um, is that the sense that you have, that this at this point is not a precision military exercise? It's just an attempt to level as much of Ukraine as they can and demoralize the people? Well, that's their plan, because on the ground, they don't have the morale to advance. I mean, the Ukrainians are putting a fight which they didn't expect. Uh, they expect they can be welcomed with a bread and salt, I guess, like in Crimea in 2014. But uh, Ukraine is a different country. Uh, for the past eight years, which we are in a war with Russia, uh, the people saw and understand that Russia brings only misery and destroy, uh, I don't know, disaster, destroyment. I don't know even how to call it. So nobody wants to ever be part of the Russian world as as they see it. So everybody's resisting, whether it's a whether it's a local uh, shepherd who has a farm with uh, ships or chicken. It doesn't matter. Everybody is grouping up. They're making roadblocks. I, I was traveling into Ukraine. I passed through all of the, I, I crossed the border in Ushur from Slovakia when I was coming back into Ukraine. And I traveled through Ukraine. And, you know, the, the level of uh, uh, morale inside Ukraine is ex extremely high. Uh, people are gathering together, making groups, making a checkpoint, blocking the roads towards their little cities and villages, uh, taking their hunting weapons and patrolling the streets. Um, it's uh, everybody's trying to resist. And uh, I do believe that on the ground, Ukraine is going to succeed. But the shelling is a big problem uh, because if we cannot uh, protect our cities, uh, 
the number of civilians and number of deaths is going to be extreme. And Russians yeah. are Putin, they're willing to go the distance. Um, and we're hearing stories of food shortages, um, is that supplies are becoming uh, short. How long do you think that Ukraine can hold out this way? I cannot say for the whole of the country. I'm, I'm in Kiev, so I can tell you the situation in Kiev. It's, uh, it's, it's getting slimmer and slimmer, although the supplies are coming in and the chain of supply is still working. But we are not being, again, we're not being bombarded as hard as Kharkiv does. Mm-hmm. So it's the moment that going to start it everything's going to change and, and things can change fast uh, inside Kiev as well. I have to ask you this question. I mean, you're quite a ten- good tennis player. Um, you, you, you have a pretty, you have a pretty great life. Um, and you've, you've put that aside to go home, to go back to, you know, your, your, your home country uh, to fight. What was that about for you? Why did you do that? Well, um, I would never imagine that uh, Russia would attack us open uh, full scale across all the border. I was uh, Saturday, just four days short of the attack. I was in Kiev. I was leaving. Uh, my kids had a school break, so I took them for vacation to Dubai. The thing is that there is no right reason for me to be here, and there's no re- right reason for me being home. I mean, there's no win-win for me. It's a lose-lose. If I would stay home, I would feel guilty because my brother and my father, they're medics, and they are in Kiev, and they stayed behind. And I have three kids which are in Budapest. Uh, it's, uh, it's a tough choice which I had to make. Uh, but I'm no different from any other father who was sending his family away and staying behind to defend. I just didn't want to f- be the privileged one who had the chance to stay out and uh, stay out. Because in the end of the day, I wouldn't have a country to return to. Because that's the ultimate goal, I guess, of, uh, of Putin is... Uh, he said it multiple times in his press conferences that Ukraine never existed, that it was created by Lenin in the beginning of a Soviet era, that, uh, that they will erase basically Ukraine out of, out of the books. And I would ha- love to have uh, a country for my kids to come back to. Well, we are seeing a great deal of gallantry um, from the people in Ukraine, including your- yourself. Thank you uh, for spending some time with us tonight. Stay safe. Thank you, Sergei Sarkovsky. Thank you, sir. And still ahead on the readout, Russian police arrest thousands of anti-war protesters as Putin's war turns their country into an international pariah. Plus the latest on the ongoing debate over establishing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And our Russian disinformation mills are now working overtime, spreading lies about the conflict across Russia and across the world. And as we go to break, have a listen to a woman playing Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World outside a train station in Lviv as Ukrainians flee the Russian advance. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. 
That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Да благодаря ему у нас есть и Сахат. Загорбачева! Загорбачева! Sometimes nothing brings people together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. That was former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev starring in an international TV commercial for Pizza Hut. In 1998, seven years after the fall of the USSR. At the time, the ad symbolized Russia's embrace of capitalism, evidence that a country that had insulated itself from the outside world for 74 years had finally joined the global economy. Fast forward to today, and Russia is quickly backsliding, thanks to Vladimir Putin. His invasion of Ukraine has prompted a mass exodus of businesses from Russia, including Visa, MasterCard and American Express, which are ceasing cardholder transactions in that country, as well as Netflix, which suspended services. They've joined a growing list of companies that have effectively pulled out of the Russian market, isolating Russia from the world economy. Meanwhile, Putin is turning the turning back the clock on the information age with new crackdowns on journalism and social media. He's blocked access to Facebook and the BBC, among others, and signed a law banning so-called fake news, including a ban on calling the invasion of Ukraine what it is, an invasion and a war, which is now punishable by up to 15 years in prison. And he's silencing dissent, arresting more than 4,500 protesters in a single day yesterday, according to a human rights group. Joining me now is former U.S. ambassador to Russia, Michael McFaul, and Nina Khrushcheva, professor of international affairs at the New School. And, and Nina, th- this is sort of fascinating in that you are now seeing Russia sort of go back. I mean, if if Putin really had in his mind to bring back the old USSR, well, he's doing it in terms of the economy. It is becoming a closed economy. He's even launching his own version of the Internet trying to make it basically it's almost like an intranet that's just inside Russia to try to control people's access to information. At some point, logic tells me that this is going to start to start to affect the Russian people who cannot possibly blame the West forever for that kind of isolation. Or can they? Well, it is already affecting the Russian people because it's not even economy yet that has been hitting them. It's more social and cultural ties, relations with their uh, partners, uh, research partners in the West uh, or everywhere for that matter. It's their ability or possibility to fly Uh, to many countries, and now there's just only a few options open. So it is already affecting them. Uh, and uh, um, he's not, I mean, it's not even bringing back the Soviet Union, because even in the Soviet Union, certainly in the second half of it, uh, there were many more contacts, connections available than they are available now. So it's almost with this, all this crackdown and the Iron Curtain Uh, falling down. It's almost bringing Russia into the Stone Age, into the black hole of uh, of non-existent global pariah. Uh, it is actually possible that when the whole world is against you, when you're basically against everybody else and everybody's shutting their door or uh, their 
tweet or their everything, uh, at least initially, probably it may result in rallying around the flag and people feeling that they have no other place to turn to than to stand up for Russia because everybody's against us. It is possible. But there's also, uh, Ambassador McFall, the possibility that things are breaking through. I mean, I've heard about this meme, um, given this law that says you can't do quote unquote fake news, including calling the war in Ukraine a war, that the sort of joke has kind of come up among sort of young Moscow residents, um, that it's security operation and peace instead of war and peace, right? That they're sort of making fun of it. And that there, there seems to be some of it seeping through. What do you make of this sort of turning of sort of Russia into kind of Cuba or, or into North Korea at this point. That is what Vladimir Putin has accomplished so far. Well, he's trying to. Uh, like Nina said, he's trying to. And he's going farther than even uh, during Cold War days. I mean, if, it, if Western media outlets are forced to leave because of this new draconian law about using the word war, you get 15 years in jail and they have to leave. They were all there during the Cold War. Uh, that's something radically new. And there's fear in Russia today. I talk to Russians every single day that he's going to try to cut off the Internet, just like you said. Um, at the same time, I, you know, you're showing these photos. Uh, there are lots of people that are protesting. And if they're protesting, they're brave enough to, 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 to deal with those characters. Look at those characters you're showing right now. If they're brave enough to do that. That means that tens of thousands and maybe more share their views. They just don't want to be arrested. And the second thing to remember is that all Russians don't think alike. All Russians don't uh, receive their information alike. And to, to oversimplify in the interest of media, uh, the more educated you are, the more urban you are, the richer you are, the less likely you are to read Putin's propaganda. And conversely, the more rural place you live, uh, the less educated you are, the less wealthy you are. And I should add, the older you are, uh, the more likely you are to read Putin's propaganda. So it's a much more divided society uh, than I think a lot of people think. That doesn't mean there's going to be massive protests. It's scary to think about 15 years in jail. But it doesn't also mean just because you don't see hundreds of thousands of people, it doesn't mean that those passive people support Putin. Uh, they don't. And we're really bad at measuring preferences in totalitarian societies. We've been bad for uh, for decades. We'll be bad here. And I think we should be very cautious in looking at the numbers of protesters and saying, oh, that must mean the rest of Russia supports Putin. They don't. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The same is true of Cuba and lots of these other countries. We just don't have a, a window into it. Um, there was an extraordinary piece of video that is going, that is circulating on social media. We were able to get a little clip of it. And this shows some men who had, they appear to be captured Russian soldiers making a plea that saying they did not understand why they were there and that they want the people back home to know. Let me play a little of that. И мне становится реально стыдно за то, что мы пришли на эту страну, на эту территорию, на территорию Украины. Если бы на мою территорию кто-то бы пришел, я бы поступил точно так же, вот как эти люди сейчас. И был бы прав. И сейчас они правы, а я сижу здесь и оправдываюсь. Seems to me that if someone like him is released and goes home, that seems like some really powerful information fresh from the front lines that actually might be able to impact people. What do you make of that? 
Well, as Michael said, it's a very diverse society. And the fact that there are no people in the streets doesn't mean that they are not because I'm sharing and my family is there. And so it's all um, people do know why they are in Ukraine. They do know that Putin is a megalomaniac who somehow decides that he wants a pan-Slavic state, according to traditional 20th century uh, certain philosophies. So, yes, they do understand that. But you wouldn't you don't even need to have a soldier or officer coming from Ukraine because people do understand uh, the stakes here, because we are now clearly cut out of the whole world precisely because we are Mm -hmm. there. And that is not because we are winning hearts and minds. No, no question about it. So, of course, and I'm sure the troops not. Uh, no, many people uh, who are fighting not sharing, uh, not sharing the premise. They don't understand why we are invading a brotherly country. For sure, yeah. the point is that because the oppression now is so giant and so overwhelming that the question is how much and for how long it will mm-hmm. continue to boil out, or yeah. people will just be suppressed, oppressed, and stopped until further notice. And, and Ambassador McFall, Russia is not winning this war. They are losing by any stretch, of, by any measure, any objective measure. You've dealt with this man, Vladimir Putin. What happens when he realizes that he's losing? Well, he is losing so far. And the fact that he has to shut down Doge TV, TV Rain, an independent television station, that he shuts down Echo Moskvi, this iconic radio station open in 1990, that he's threatening to shut down the entire internet. That's the evidence that he knows he's losing, right? You wouldn't be doing those things if you were winning. And mm-hmm. just to echo something Nina said, his argument for why they're there, people don't understand. It took him 58 minutes to try to explain it. If you need 58 minutes to uh, make your argument, you're confused about your argument. But yeah. what I worry about, instead of thinking, sue for peace and get out, he's doubling down. Uh, And that means we're going to see more casualties. We're going to be seeing more killing. I fear the worst is yet to come. Yeah, unfortunately, you're probably right. Former Ambassador Michael McFaul, Nina Khrushcheva, thank you both very much. Still ahead, President Zelensky renews his calls for a no-fly zone over his embattled country. But is the risk of escalating this conflict worth the reward? We'll be right back. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. 
That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. The West has rejected Ukrainian President Zelensky's pleas to establish a no-fly zone due to fears that it could lead, quite frankly, to World War III. And a deal that would have provided fighter jets to Ukraine is unlikely to happen as well. The U.S. and Poland had been in talks about providing those jets, but NBC News is reporting tonight that there is little momentum for that deal. Meanwhile, a White House spokesperson said the U.S. is collecting evidence of possible Russian war crimes. And countries are considering new sanctions on an already cratering Russian economy. The U.S. is in active talks with Europe to ban Russian oil imports. However, the world's biggest buyer of Russian crude oil, Germany, has so far rejected that plan. And Putin, for his part, has claimed sanctions are akin to a declaration of war. I'm joined now by Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the former director for European affairs at the National Security Council and a senior advisor at Vote Vets and the author of Here Right Matters. And Malcolm Nance, MSNBC counterterrorism and intelligence analyst and the author of the upcoming book, They Want to Kill Americans, the Malicious Terrorists and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. Thank you all for being here. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, I want to start with you. You have said that you believe that short of doing a no-fly zone, if that's not tenable, there are ways that we could make a no something like it possible. This is what you wrote. Establishing a no-fly zone over Ukraine may be too provocative, but if the West is unwilling to stage that sort of intervention, that it ought to supply Ukraine with the tools it needs to control the skies itself, including ones that would allow Ukraine to strike Russian warehouses or staging areas holding aircraft ballistic missiles and cruise missiles beyond Ukraine's borders. Well, if the West and Poland is, are saying, well, we're not even going to supply you the fighter jets— how would the West then help? Well, there's uh, the, the ideas for this Lend-Lease uh, program, which is bigger than just weapons. It's it's the humanitarian aid that Ukraine needs, the medicine, uh, basically depot everything, build warehouses, uh, uh, non, non-permanent warehouses, and everything that the, Ukra- uh, the Ukrainians need to sustain themselves through this war they have. A big part of that, of course, is the weapons. And we should follow the uh, uh, Turks lead that Turkey is providing TB2s, these uh, um, Bayraktar drones that have been pretty effective. So if we're not prepared to do a no-fly zone, and I understand that there are deep concerns about the risk, I don't necessarily disagree with them. Although, frankly, we very well may find ourselves there because we are far from done. Uh, Putin is not done. This is going to turn into a much, much bigger humanitarian catastrophe, and we might end up there. So we should do things that prevent us from having to make those really, really difficult choices down the road. And that's providing drones. That's providing more medium range uh, anti-tank and surface to air missile systems that keep us out of having to put NATO forces in, in the area. Those are not beyond the pale. There are precedents for these kinds of support. Right now, we're just being de- uh, deterred by Russian saber rattling, by blackmail, and frankly, by a miscalculation, a strategic miscalculation that it ends here, that it doesn't get worse, and that the pressure from the uh, international community, from our own constituencies, is not going to force the, the hand of our po- uh, political leadership in a way that's going to be much more dangerous as time moves on. Yeah, I mean, it is a calculation, um, Malcolm, that, you know, if we could just bleed Russia economically, that that will, I guess, drain the coffers they're using to fight. But it doesn't seem to be draining the, the will of at least some of these concepts. That the, sort of the way that Russia's uh, sort of troops are made up. You have people on one-year contracts. You have people making less than $25 a month, poorly trained, severe hazing and abuse. Then you have these contract soldiers 
which are 70 percent of the military. They have these three years contracts. They make a lot more money. They get a lot better trained. There's this mix of it. There's even reports that they're trying to bring in Syrian uh, fighters to try to get in that have more experience with urban combat. It doesn't seem like even though they are losing, they're backing down. I, I want you to very quickly listen to President Zelensky. He did an interview with ABC News' David Muir, and this is what he said. This was his plea to Americans. I, ju- I just want you to feel and to understand what does it mean for us freedom? Because always American people, uh, they speak about freedom and they, and, and they know what is it. And now when you are looking at Ukrainians, I think you feel what does it mean for us? Malcolm, are we just doomed to, to, to sit here and watch these brave people die and not be able to do anything for the legitimate fear of starting World War III? No, and not at all. And the legitimate fear of starting World War III is is really something where you're pushing beyond the extreme. Look, there's not going to be a no-fly zone. I took part in the no-fly zones in southern and northern Iraq that was creating humanitarian no-fly zones for the Kurds. But we struck every piece of Iraqi air defense systems that activated or even looked in our direction and attempt and prepared to shoot down every aircraft there. That is not what the rush what the Ukrainians really need from us. I had a meeting with, or I met the commander of Ukrainian armed forces or land forces, General Sersky, and he said, we have the manpower. We have 250,000 men and women. We can bring hundreds of thousands more. We need the weapons. And what the United States needs to do uh, is stop having a failure of imagination. Colonel Vindman's right. We can loan them systems under Lend-Lease. Look, if we can drive destroyers over to England, uh, in the height of the of of the um, of the Atlantic War with German submarines everywhere, we can fly in drones to Venezia or uh, or Ivano Frankis, any one of their small bases there, land them there, and give them a drone control pod, you know, an MQ nine Reapers with Hellfire missiles, and then let them operate it. Let them come with the learning curve. I would say. 20 would be enough with all the Hellfire missiles they can carry. And in some instances, they can actually carry air-to-air weapons. It's time for us to start using this as a, uh, a, if we want to try to help the Ukrainians as best, start experimenting a little. The Russians did it with, uh, you know, Azerbaijan and Turkey did it against Armenia with drones. Maybe it's time for drones to dominate the air, including well, uh, I'll, I'll reserve what I was just thinking there because it was very ISIS-like. But for the most part, the United States needs to help these people. And that's all they're asking for is a logistics pipeline that will not stop. I am one of the few analysts that believes I believe that Ukraine can actually win this war by defeating all of the strategic objectives of the Russians. They've already done it by stopping them at essentially not even their first major phase line. So why not help them? It, it, it does seem just sort of, you know, at, not as an expert at all, that Russia is losing at this stage, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, um, and that all that the Ukrainians need, they obviously have the will to fight. They obviously have the heart for it. Um, they just need a little bit of help. Uh, why do you suppose the focus has remained on a no-fly zone, at least from the president of Ukraine? First, first let me say I love uh, Malcolm's uh, optimism. I wish I shared it. I think that there is uh, a real, a very good chance that the Ukrainians could uh, block 
the Russians from achieving their strategic objectives, at least the initial strategic objectives. But the punishing, grinding war that's about to unfold could could develop in ways that are it's hard for us to conceive. Uh, it's uh, we should recognize that you know our own history we've been dragged into uh, human catastrophe mm. and human suffering, and we're going to go. We're not going to be able to sit on the sidelines. And the choices that we're going to have to make down the road are going to be a lot more stark, a lot more risky than now. The bar for war with Russia is very, very high. The Russians do not want a nuclear war. They do not want a conventional war as badly as they're uh, handling this business with Ukraine right now. They're getting mauled. So we should not yeah. be risk averse on the basic things we need to provide. Yeah. And that's really what's affecting us is we are in our own heads. We're overthinking this. These aircraft could uh, the biggest hurdle is across the border. We should yeah. just push them across and the yeah. Ukrainians can operate them and do what they need to. And also, perhaps the president of Ukraine could should do fewer Zoom calls with Republican senators who can't seem to keep their mouths shut and keep their little fingers off their Twitter buttons. I see you, Marco Rubio. Joy, I can and- tell you where to get MiG-29s right now. We have a subcontractor company that's flying them for the U.S. Air Force out in California. Buy them outright, deliver them the next day. All right. Well, that, the, the advice has been delivered. Alexander Vindman, Malcolm Nance, thank you both very, not, very, mu- very much. Up next, a firehouse of falsehood. That is how one expert describes the Russian approach to spreading disinformation, how social and traditional media companies are finally fighting back. Stay with us. Russian President Vladimir Putin is not just waging war against Ukraine using troops and missiles. He's also using disinformation. The goal is to make it appear that Russia is the victim and Ukraine the aggressor. Putin has distorted the truth, calling his war a special military operation with the mission of, quote, denazifying Ukraine. None of that, of course, is true. But just as Putin seems to be losing the ground war, he also seems to be losing the online battle. In fact, Twitter has banned more than 100 accounts spreading disinformation, all using the hashtag I stand with Putin. According to NBC News, it's an indication that Russia's once feared firehouse of falsehood has been both neutralized and drowned out in recent weeks, particularly as Western media and social platforms have sprung into action. Joining me now is NBC News senior reporter Ben Collins, who co-wrote that story. And Ben, I mean, the stuff that you wrote about and that uh, is sort of out there is as loony as trying to draw Anthony Fauci in a weird sort of biolab conspiracy theory. Please explain. I think it's pulling in the weird truckers. What in the world is going on? Yeah, so the backup plan to this denazification idea was the idea that there's going to be biolabs funded by the United States in Ukraine that were funding some sort of second coronavirus. That was their game plan for a backup pretext to this war. And you can actually see this as well on, on the, the far right spaces, places like Patriots.win, which used to be called the Donald, which is where January 6th was planned online. Uh, the same day the invasion happened, you could see all of these this this upswing in posts about the Anthony Fauci biolabs that were happening in Ukraine. This is all made up. This is not real. But it's the big thing that, w- that had taken over the far-right internet. And you have to give them credit a little bit, too, here. Some of the people in the trucker convoy were like, no, we see this brutality. We see how bad this is. We don't want any part of this thing. So they stepped away from this, you know, I would say 50-50, stepped away from that talking point. While some people still, you know, because of how uh, ingrained the hatred of Anthony Fauci is in the far right spaces, some people leaned into this. So you're seeing sort of like a 50-50 split right now in these far right telegram groups between people who are pro-Putin because of the Fauci stuff 
and uh, still, you know, people who see reality, people who are anti-Putin because of the brutality they see with their very own eyes. And and I, we have a chart here. I'm going to just put it up. And this is um, showing the increase in users on the 15 platforms that are monitored using disinformation discussing the biolabs. I saw the I stand with Putin hashtag and I stand with Russia hashtags over the weekend and thought, OK, immediately this is some some bot action. But I mean, you've reported on things even as bizarre as creating fake people who are supposedly Ukrainian reporters, but they actually don't exist. Please explain. Yeah. So Russian uh, troll farms, the same troll farms as 2016, the guy who ran those troll farms back then, the same group, um, they were creating fake human beings using AI generated photos that you can create at any moment using a website called thispersondoesnotexist.com. And they were doing that to create these profiles on Facebook to lend legitimacy to these Russian uh, propaganda sites called Ukraine Today, which is bananas. This whole thing is a very elaborate Thing that was going on for a year before this war. So that's how long this setup was going on. Yeah. They were doing it to prop up these much larger narratives for the pretext to this invasion. The thing is, it just didn't work. Like this, when you see the actual stuff coming out of Ukraine from people who have had their homes shelled, for example, and you contrast that with a person whose face is messed up because they were created by you know a computer a few weeks ago, I, I think most people can see what the reality is here. The reality is the pictures you're seeing right now on your screen. Uh, information can go uh, in the face of just abject brutality. Yeah. I mean, we've heard stories about, you know, people who live in Ukraine not being able to convince family members that they themselves are being bombed because of the disinformation. It's but it's, it, it sounds to me like younger people, younger Russians, people who have more access to at least before uh, they shut it down to social media. Is that the reason this isn't working? Because people have access to I know they can get on TikTok, they can get on Facebook, they can find out for themselves. Why do you think that this propaganda machine is failing so thoroughly? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think a big part of this, too, people bring up North Korea as a parallel. Uh, the services weren't just shut off there overnight, though. That's the difference. People were going to H&M in Russia. People were, you know, watching Netflix and then talking about it on TikTok. Now you can't go to H&M. You cannot watch Netflix. And you can't post anything on TikTok from Russia because it might fall under the fake news law. Everything has to be pre-approved. So if you're a young person in Russia right now, your life is dramatically different than it was two weeks ago. And if yeah. that doesn't set off some alarm bell in your head that you might not be being told the truth by the government, uh, then event like I don't I don't know what's wrong necessarily. You would have to really reconsider stuff uh, yeah. because your whole reality has been flipped o- uh, over entirely in the last two weeks. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you went to sleep in, in Moscow and woke up in North Korea. Basically, uh, it is it is pretty wild. Ben Collins. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you up next. As the world mobilizes to address the growing humanitarian crisis caused by Putin's war, it is important to remember that it is one of many humanitarian crises in the world right now. We'll be right back. As the world watches the devastation unfold in Ukraine, nearly 4,000 miles away, another crisis is deepening that we don't hear much about in the U.S., And that is the war in Yemen. In March of 2015, a Saudi-led coalition backed by the United States intervened militarily in Yemen in a bid to fight Iran-backed Houthi rebels. It it has triggered one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world due to widespread hunger, disease, and attacks on civilians. Four million Yemenis have been forced to flee their homes. 
Now, what we're seeing in Ukraine is absolutely the worst humanitarian crisis that Europe has seen in decades. But we haven't witnessed the same type of solidarity for the Yemenis as we do for the Ukrainians. We don't see historic sanctions or global campaigns, corporations like Airbnb and Netflix taking a stand. And this is not to say that we shouldn't care this much for Ukraine. Far from it. The point is, we should also care this much for refugees and those facing occupation and war in the Middle East and Asia and Africa, too. The coverage of Ukraine has revealed a pretty radical disparity in how human Ukrainians look and feel to Western media compared to their browner and blacker counterparts, with some reporters using very telling comparisons in their analyses of the war. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed, children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. The unthinkable has happened to them. And this is not a developing third world nation. This is Europe. This isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. Mm, civilized. Okay, let's face it. The world is paying attention because this is happening in Europe. If this was happening anywhere else, would we see the same outpouring of support and compassion? Well, we don't need to ask ourselves if the international response would be the same if Russia unleashed their horror on a country that wasn't white and largely Christian. Because Russia has already done it in Syria. This is a teachable moment for us in the media. We aren't afraid to call out our own industry. There is a lot of soul searching that we need to do in Western media about why some wars and lives seem to matter more than others and why some refugees get the welcome mat while others get the wall. And that is tonight's readout. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 